we got four ideas about God we've been dealing with. <laughs> and uh, we'd started this here on your outline or your handout there, Now What? Our topic. Remember, we started this back whenever we started before Christmas when it said, and you shall have a, a son shall be born, his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And I said, well, what does that mean? So what? Or now what? If God is with us, now what? Now what does that mean? What, is, what does that help us to understand? What does that have to do with my life? Okay, it's a wonderful story at Christmas. It's a wonderful assertion. It's a wonderful thing to say. But now what? And we've been looking at that and trying to understand a little bit more of what it means that he is now with us. What is that wonderful thought of Emmanuel? Emmanuel with us, God, El, that he is with us now. So, you know, what does that mean? And so we've looked at several things. And one of the things that I think that suggests, and I'm going to ask you if you will turn in your Bibles, go to your table of contents, find the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. In my, it's in the New Testament. In my Bible, it's 1124. Go to the first chapter there. And this has been sort of a basic verse we've been using for a little while. And really, um, it starts up at verse 9 in chapter 1, where uh, Paul begins to say, For this reason, since we've heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, so Paul is saying, look, here's what I'm praying for you, that you'd be filled with spiritual, notice here, wisdom and understanding. Those are two important features there that with God with us, that we would be filled with a spiritual wisdom and then understand it or have some understanding of how it operates. Paul goes on to several other things. And then I, I want to just draw our attention because this is where we've been here. Uh, in verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Not of light, in light. Sharing an inheritance of the saints in light. That's a numerical standard. Verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so we said that uh, one of the things about God being with us is that we're now in the kingdom of light. We see things now more clearly. We have uh, insight, perhaps, or uh, understanding that maybe we didn't have before. And one of the things that I've suggested uh, in this area of being in the light is that we see two things uh, more clearly. One is, I think because of who Jesus is and what he did, we see ourselves more clearly. We see ourselves more clearly. I need to get my water here. As creating the image of God, having ultimate value and worth, not because of what we do, but who we are. Uh, that's a different idea in the world. It, our world says you're important because of what you do or what you have. The scripture tells us we're important because of who we are, that we're created in the image of God. You can't lose that. can't destroy it. It's who you are. The other one is, though, that we are able to see God more clearly. That's where we've kind of been uh, drilling down on that. We not only see ourselves more clearly if we see Jesus in the gospel, but we see God more clearly. And I've, uh, this uh, quote on your handout there is this, and I think it really is it. What comes in our minds when we think about God is the most important uh, thing about us. What, we th what we comes in our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I, I referred to last week, and I'll come back again this week, to the Baylor study that was done in 2006 on how do Americans see God. And they basically <clears throat> came away with four and I told you last week that's been fascinating to me that those four different kinds of way people view God, 30 years ago when I was doing this work here, I came away with four views I think that are correct. Now, I'm not claiming divine inspiration. I'm just saying it was kind of interesting to me that when Baylor came out in 2006 with their four basic views of how people view God, 30 years before that or 25 before that, I had work through this and come to the conclusion, in my thinking at least, there were at least four, four accurate, correct ones. And I'm going to try to, again, work us back through this last one so that we can say, how do we then approach that? So what we, and, and the Baylor study said this, uh, based on how people view God, you can almost predict their views on morality, their views on uh, the future, their views on how they see other people that the Baylor study said that understanding a person's view of God is the most predictive 
piece of how people act. Isn't that interesting? That it's the most predictive. If a person has the concept of a transcendent God, one that is above them and over them and seeing all, knowing all, that their view of God is the most predictive uh, feature as to how they're going to act and react in life. I've believed that for a long time. Tozer said the same. What you think about God is the most important thing about God. And then I gave you this from William Temple that just rattled my cage about 30 years ago, that if you have a false view of God, the more religious you are, what? The worse it is. Wow. See, the people that get more religious with a false view of God, it gets worse. Generally, they get meaner. <laughs> Generally, they become more uh, uh, permissive on, some, on, on the kind of different angles. And so it would be better for you to be an atheist. So I want us again to kind of dial in here on this idea of being in the kingdom of light, of seeing God more clearly, maybe, maybe, maybe to help us with this last one. Now, uh, you, you have on your outline there somewhere, I'd, I'd like to see it on mine. Um, I think I've got it. But let me show you how this works in this idea of seeing things correctly. Um, and we're going to try, to try to dig in here a little more about we can see things, but are we seeing them correctly? You ever notice that? You, 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 ever, you ever looked at something? I, I remember one time we'd been traveling from Houston to Kentucky when I was in college. And uh, we'd been driving for a long, long time, maybe about 11 hours. And I'm uh, driving along, and I see a dragon in the middle of the highway. <laughs> I wasn't taking anything. <laughs> I hadn't drunk anything illegal <laughs> or an adult beverage. But my eyes did something to me. I'm, I'm telling you, I said, I, I think there's a dragon up there. Somebody said, I think you need to quit driving. <laughs> and I said, but I'm a guy. <laughs> and I can't give up the wheel. Uh, I, I saw it. I, I had a, saw something come up there, find it wasn't actually a dragon. Are you surprised? <laughs> Yeah, really wasn't a dragon on Interstate 40. Um, but our perception of things, which is profoundly affected by our life and our growth. So I want to say that you've probably seen this before, but what do you see there? An old lady. Huh, what? A young lady. What's wrong with you people? This is an interesting perception test. Yeah. Would y'all let me teach here for a minute? <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. Now, this will be on the test. This idea that, that, that this image here, some of it depends on your perspective. If you are looking to, the, to, the, to your right, who do you see? An old, old lady, I would suggest. If, however, your vision is over here and you were to consider that that's the nose and the front bangs and the ear of someone, what does that look like? A young lady. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is this kind of malleable person or that you can think of him one way, one time, another. So what I'm suggesting is, is that your perspective has a lot to do with how you see God. Your perspective and mine. We don't just got, it just isn't a, a one for one kind of situation. For, in fact, the first time I saw this, I saw the older lady and I, could, I just sat, stood there and said, I don't, you're crazy. There's not a young girl there, right? Because I had to get my perspective a bit changed. I could not see it. Y'all remember those 3D things? How many of y'all stood in front of one of those at the mall for 20 minutes? And they kept saying, look closer. I'm looking as close as I can, right? Well, look closer. What do you mean to do, put my nose on it? Yeah, I mean, I, I did everything I could. I kept looking at it, kept looking at it, kept looking at it. Never could. I just want to ask you to consider that your experience, my experience, we've talked about this to some length, that our perspective on seeing God sometimes can be very formidable in the way we see God and the way we react to him or relate to him. Now, in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the Baylor study, they said there are basically four views, and you, we're going to get to these in your outline. Don't worry about this. And uh, I want to suggest to you that in our work, that we're proposing a more biblically informed view, 
Number one is that God is consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to listen to the, to the, pot, the recordings we've done this a couple weeks ago. And what I want to suggest here in this is if we understand God is consistent with the person of Jesus Christ in every way. He's the final grid. That the real issue we're dealing with here is character. What is this God like? Is the character of God most clearly seen in the person of Jesus? You have to deal with that. Now, again, we've said this before. Be careful. Jesus is a pretty complicated guy. He's a very complicated guy. I was reading the Gospels this morning in Luke, and I thought, what? If, if, you know, if Jesus doesn't surprise you every once in a while, you're not reading very closely, <laughs> right? I, I mean, I, I went, what? He's talking about, well, anyway. Now, that's it. Now, what I want to suggest that this view is, is the antidote to a distant God. This is the one of the, one of the Baylor, uh, uh, Baylor discoveries, that people that see God as distant, kind of apart from everything. This, this view of God, in my judgment, is, is there's an antidote to this one. If you, want, if you don't want a distant God, remember, he came and was a baby. Philip and I were talking earlier this morning that he, he said, I finally understand why Jesus became a baby. And I said, where have you been going to church? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> but he read a great essay by Soren Kierkegaard on the king and the maiden. If you ever ever read that, Google it, not now. Google it and read it. The, the great essay on the, the king and the maiden of how this king became a pauper in order to make sure that the young maiden really loved him, not because he was king, but Jesus is that one that helps us to understand that God is not distant, okay? Second, this is on your outline here. A God is consistent with a God who has our best interest at heart. We dealt with that with some of the... Uh, some of the ramifications of that. Now, the issue here for us is control. Am I going to give control up to someone I don't believe has my best interest at heart? You going to do that? Why? We said that last week about 40 times. This is a test. Good, good mental and spiritual health. To turn yourself over to somebody that you're not convinced has your best interest at heart is not good mental health, right? Good mental health, though, if I'm convinced that God has my best interest at heart, then I'm willing to give the control of my life to him. That's the issue. And the antidote, in my judgment, is the authoritative God. This is the other one that Baylor discovered. I mean, how many of us obeyed God because we just knew he was bigger than us. <laughs> Anybody? The authoritative God? I'm God, you're not, so do what I say. Regardless of whether it's good for you or whether you're convinced that God really has your best interest at heart, you do it because I said so. And that's one of the views that Baylor comes out with to say this authoritative God that is constantly, if you will, almost manipulating people simply because he can. Now, if we have a view of God who's consistent with a God who has our best interest at heart, we can address the issue of control, which we all struggle with, and we can address the issue of the authoritative God. Does that make sense? The third one. Ha <clears throat> ha. What was that? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? God of holy love. We talked about that. Remember, do you remember what the, what the distinction is here? On a God of holy love? What, what's the distinguishing characteristic of holy love? Huh? He wants the best for us. That's true. Here, write this down again. There will be a test next week. No. <laughs> I think it's important because as we said last week, the word love has almost become vacuous or come to the point that it means let me do what I want to do. And if you disagree with anybody anymore nowadays, you hate them, right? Okay, we've got to recover this notion because the scripture, I think, would suggest that the matter is holy love. And here it is. Holy love is love that makes distinctions. The distinction of sanctioning or agreeing with what is good for you. And the love that resists 
what is bad for you. This is not sloppy agape. <laughs> That's a Greek word for love, agape. This, this is the kind of love you gave your kids. This is the kind of love you care if you really care for someone. You are not going to sit back and be idle and approve of what you know will destroy them. Holy love is a love that makes distinctions. It is not willing to abide or enable what is destructive. Now, we got to really be careful here. We've got to really be careful here. I can't go around and say, well, I know what's good for you. You ought to listen to me. Well, now, hold on. But the notion of holy love has the notion of I will not remain silent, God or us, and allow something that I know is going to destroy you and just keep smiling because I know it's going to kill you. See, this is the thing we've got to recover in our culture because love has gotten too soft and it's become almost a non-matter anymore. You did this with your kids, didn't you? With your grandkids. Now, nah, you don't do it with your grandkids. You let them go home and drive their parents crazy. <clears throat> yeah. You said to your kids, you're not having that. You're not going there. You're not eating this for breakfast. Why? Because I love you. And so, holy love. Now, what, what I think this uh, addresses is the issue of content. I told you I'm writing a paper to myself because I'm trying to clear this up my own thinking. If we don't get straight what is the content of love, we're going to be adrift. If we, if we don't get the content of love figured out, what is it? It's to wish and want the best for a person, right? It's, it's to wish and want the best. I remember when I was playing football in Texas, I was kind of a little guy. When I was in the ninth grade, we had two guys named the Haskett brothers. Why do I remember them? I don't know, because they scared me to death. <clears throat> I was about this height. I was about this height and about 140 pounds and played running back because I was running from everybody <laughs> in Texas. We had two offensive linemen named the Haskett brothers. They were 6'2 and weighed 245 in the ninth grade. Chuck Beasley was... I got to, I'm going to find these guys one of these days and beat the living daylights out of them. <laughs> Chuck Beasley broke my nose one time in a drill, basically. Um, and I remember saying to my dad, I'm going to quit football and go back to the band or something. <laughs> you know, something. I'm going to quit. I, you know, this is too hard. And I, you know, I, was, you know, I busted my nose up a little bit. Beasley put his right there. And then he apologized. Smart aleck. I said to my dad, I'm going to quit football. He said, no, you're not. And I said, dad, I look, see right here, this right here. He said, you're not going to quit. And I said, but it's not fun. And my dad basically said this to me. He said, I want to tell you something, son. You're going to have to learn that you can't quit when things get hard. You're going to have to learn that you can't stop when you just run into difficulty. Now, there's no real danger here. They're not going to kill you. Coach Brunette is not going to put you in very often. You're not that good. <clears throat> <clears throat> I wasn't. So there wasn't real. The danger was practice. <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, Brunette wasn't putting me in very often. I got another story. I'm not going to go there. Uh, but um, uh, he said, you're not quitting. Man, I was mad and angry. And I thought he doesn't care about me. I can tell you as an older man, and even when I was in college, that my dad taught me the lesson that you can continue even if you don't like it. And my life, I've said uh, to friends of mine before, uh, I, I, I thank my dad for that, that he put in me not quitting. I remember we went to seminary. I've told you this before. I've been to class two days. And I get a letter from the IRS, not, hey, how's it going? Uh, <clears throat> not, you know. <clears throat> I, get a, I get a letter from the IRS that says, we've looked at your taxes. I'm thinking, why me? I mean, I'm a little fish, okay? And they say, you owe us $3,000. That's all the money in the world that we had. 
the church that I pastored continued to pay me for a little while after we left to help us, and that was all the money the world had. And this IRS. And I thought, uh-oh, because Wayne had helped me with my taxes. So... <laughs> Two days later, I get a letter from Allstate Insurance in Texas. Dear Mr. Sanders, your car has been in a wreck and abandoned on the side of the road. I had sold a car <clears throat> and signed the title over and had, um, uh, had it notarized. And in Texas, you know, here I guess you just have to walk in there and do it right then. But in then, you didn't have to do it. So somebody bought this car, and we don't know if they were going to run drugs in it or what, but it got used and was in a wreck off a, a Southwest Highway uh, 59 in Houston. And the insurance company's coming after me. Put that letter down. I wasn't thinking about Coach Burnett. I wasn't thinking much, but I said to my wife, I said to Becky, now I'm two days or three days into maybe four days, close, first week. Uh, I'm like four days into my graduate work. It's going to take me four years to finish a three-year degree because I'm not borrowing money. I'm going to pay as I go. And I've got a part-time job. You've actually got a part-time job. And I said this to her. If I have to crawl on my hands and knees, I'm going to finish what I started. I wondered about that. Did that start back in the ninth grade? Well, it started before that because my dad wouldn't let me quit before that. Now, nothing dangerous. He, you know, he would never let me get in danger, but he said, yeah, that's holy love. Makes a distinction. You're not liking this. You're not going to think this is fun, but trust me, this is going to work for you. Holy love. Third, fourth, or here, 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 the, the issue's content. And I want to suggest to you because there is this view from the Baylor study of the benevolent or permissive God. My students, I hear them say this, and we've talked about this at some length, when they say, well, I know it's wrong, and I know I shouldn't do it, but God will forgive me later. Wait a minute. That's that benevolent, permissive God that doesn't make distinctions between what's good for you and what's bad for you. And so this issue is the issue of content. What is this God like in terms of content of love? And it's benevolent. So the fourth one now we're going to today is this. God is consistent with the revelation of a God who's Father, who is Father. <clears throat> now, um, we're going to look at some uh, passages here. Uh, i got to get my thing here. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, let me ask you just to go to Matthew chapter 5, real quickly. That's the first book in the New Testament. Go to your table of contents there if you've got your Bible. Matthew, I'm on page 915, that's where it is. And we're going to look here just for a moment in Matthew. <clears throat> um, a God is consistent with the revelation of God as Father. Let me make a couple of observations. <clears throat> um, in Judaism, in Judaism, according to uh, a scholar I've studied, a guy named uh, Joachim Jeremias, it looks like Jeremias if you're from Texas, but it's Jeremias. Uh, uh, Joachim Jeremias, uh, he made this observation in studying and looking at all the rabbinical literature, the rabbis and the Old Testament that there's no evidence that anyone ever directly addressed God as their father. Anywhere. Nowhere. Jeremias' uh, assertion is that when Jesus comes on the scene and begins to talk about God as a father, as our father, is a totally new idea. And I scoured the Old Testament several years ago and looked at that. And there really is no evidence. Now, there's a couple of places where the, where the scripture says, the prophet says, God who brought you out of Egypt and was your father as a nation. Kind of, but nothing personal. Nothing personal in the entire Old Testament. And this idea of God as father is really a new idea in the New Testament. No evidence anywhere that God was ever referred to as father, or my father, or our father. Now, if you look in Matthew, where you are in five, <clears throat> I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things about this. That in the gospel of Matthew there in five through uh, <clears throat> seven, you can go back and look at this later, the word father shows up uh, 50, uh, seven, 17 times, <clears throat> the word father in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five to seven. 17 times. 
Nothing else shows up in the Sermon on the Mount more than that. Father, 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 over and over again. So Jesus in his magnum opus, or what many people would call is his magna carta of the kingdom. This idea of what is, the, what is life in the kingdom like? Here it is. And the one subject that keeps coming up again and again and again and again is Father. Let your light shine. Starts in 516. Let your light shine. That means your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In 545, be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, beware of practicing your works of righteousness and be noticed by men, lest your Father who's in heaven. So on and on and on and on. 17 different times. This is what Jesus came to talk about. Another, another piece of this is interesting. Is in John 13 to 17. Now, I'm not going to turn there, but I'll just give you the data. In John 13 to 17. John 13 to 17. This is the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's with his disciples, teaching them a lot of things. But in that section, the word father shows up 51 times. Uh, John 13 to 17. John 13, 13, 14, 15, 16. 17. In, those, in those chapters, 51 times the word father shows up. Jeremias takes these matters and considers the fact that there is without a doubt in his mind that what Jesus came to do was not just teach people about prayer or sacrifice. They knew all that stuff. He came to teach them about a father. He came to teach them about a father. I've tried to reflect on this some and think about this. All the different times that Jesus referred to God as a father, which was almost unheard of. Remember, the Jews are very sensitive to the name of God. In fact, today, if you see in a, on, a, on a Jewish website or something, you'll see the word spelled out like this. They won't even spell it. Uh, they have this other term, Hashem. That's Hebrew for the name. That when they refer to God, they just say, and may the name be praised. This idea of God's name or who God is, is in its sacredness, is almost uh, hard to imagine in the New Testament age because we become used to that, that idea. But all of these matters suggest that Jesus came to reveal to us this matter about a true father. Now, I'm going to ask you to go, if you will, please, go to your table of contents, find the book of Romans. We're going to spend some time unpacking this one in Romans chapter 8, 1070. This idea of God as father. This idea of God as Father. By the way, while you're turning there, I, I just want to make a comment here. We're, we're in Romans 8, and we're going to be at 14. We're going to be at Romans 8, 14. 8, 14. Notice here. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, that, that idea is daughters, sons, children of God would be a good translation there. For all are being led. Maybe underline the word led or being led. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received the spirit of slavery. What's that next word there? Is that in, I've got the New American Standard here. Huh? For you've not received the spirit of slavery. Leading to fear again. But you received the spirit of adoption. Or cry, look at those that. For those who are being led by the Spirit of God, verse 14, who are they? Sons of God. So those who are being led. Then he says, where are you not being led? Into the spirit of slavery. Look here now. You, those who are being led, they're sons of God. For you've not received the spirit of slavery Leading to fear when? Again. Look at those. Those are, those are important words there. You've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear. What's the contrast here? The contrast between a son and what? A slave. Fear and what? Not fear. Right? 
The contrast here that Paul is trying to work out is saying if you and I are being led by the Spirit of God, we're not being led into this spirit of slavery to fear what? Again. That must mean that before being a child of God, what might have characterized our life? Fear. Now, you know what? We, we used to sing a song that I got hung up on because a lot of my Christian life, fear stayed in there. I didn't listen to the song carefully enough. We, we don't sing it very often, but I didn't listen to it. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. I don't think I understood grace enough because I stayed stuck in what? Fear. Anybody with me? Anybody get stuck there to say it was grace that taught my, okay, fear, what it means. The fear of, okay, there, you should deal with this cliff. You know, when, when you find out you've got an open wound and you're bleeding, you say, well, we might want to take care of this. <laughs> or you find out there's something wrong to say, it was grace that taught my heart to fear stuck. And grace, my fears relieved. How precious was that moment, right? But some of us got stuck. We, we never got out of that fear. Now, now, Paul says this. You've not, why is he saying this? Because there must be some people who are still there. He's saying you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Stuart. He's asking the question, fear of God, fear of what? <clears throat> I think he's saying this, that what should characterize one's life in this new life in the Spirit starts back at 8.1. Life in the Spirit. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus for the law of life and Spirit of Christ. Jesus set me free from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do, God sent his Son in the light of sinful flesh, condemning sin in the flesh, that the right requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's 8.1 to 4. He's saying, in this new life in the Spirit, there is no room, if you will, for a spirit of slavery and fear. It's the Spirit of the Son that should characterize the life that we live now. Fear of God, fear of not measuring up, fear of, of uh, performance, because We've lived that way. We've tried to operate that way. He said, he's not, this, the fear here is you're not going back. But I think, Stuart, the, the specific matter here is it's the spirit of slavery. So think about what is, the, what is the spirit of the slave? Performance. Value by performance. Yes. That's what I was just thinking <clears throat> of. A slave lives in fear. Yes. Of doing any little tiny thing for the master. The master yep. could just be a bad mood. Right. And, uh, yeah. Yep, and, and, and the slave is living by performance. Now, Wesley, John Wesley commented on this because he, he, he said he believed, if I read him correctly, or, you know, uh, I have to make a Wesley comment at some point. Yeah, um, God bless him. Wesley said he believed that there were believers, followers of Jesus, who were genuinely saved that still had the spirit of the slave. For whatever reason, maybe the way they saw God, it was grace that taught their heart to fear and they got stuck. Here's, I, here's what I'll tell you. I think, <clears throat> I think is this. Um, if in our lives when we serve God or do something for him, you know, who knows what that would be. Here's, what, here's how I would typify it. So I'm trying to serve God by some ministry or I'm trying to be nice to my next door neighbor so they'll become a Christian or I'm just trying to be a nice person because I think that's what I ought to do. Maybe they won't, I'm not, maybe not, nothing in here to do. And it goes well. Or I make a decision, I do some act of service or care for another and it goes well. I feel close to God. I do the same thing, do some act of service, do some kind of activity or something and it goes poorly. And I feel what? 
Far from God. You got the spirit of the slave. You got, you got the spirit of the slave. Because it's performance. I'm not saying, look, I'm not saying don't do your best. I'm not saying we just lay around in a hammock. Hey, you know, it's all wonderful here. I'm, I'm saying, I, you know, I do my best and reach out to someone or, or try to be kind or, or, or something like that. And it doesn't go well. And then all of a sudden, this self-recrimination begins. Well, you must not have done it right. Or God must not be pleased with you. Or he doesn't love you as much as he loves Marty. Right? He, that's not true. No. <laughs> thoughts and opinions as a teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions. Cross me, church elders. Uh, so it's performance. The fear. How, how many of us, listen, this I think is particularly in the psyche of the American human being. That it's performance and it's accumulation that we value. It's performance and accumulation. It's performance and accumulation. So, so this idea of you've not received the spirit of slavery to fear again. Man, look, look over here real quick in 1 Timothy. I'm just going to the right. I don't have time to go to my table of contents. Look over in 1 Timothy. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. I get those guys mixed up. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Timidity is some of the translational matters here. God's not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. So, so this idea of, of a father, this, this idea of a father is so radical that, that Paul's saying, look, um, you, this is not how you get led, Cliff. If, if you're being led by the Spirit, you're a son of God. But you've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you've received the spirit of adoption where we cry, Abba, Father. Interesting, Abba. Uh, it's a, it's a, what we call a labial. It, it is the easiest word for a baby to say in Hebrew. Abba, it would be, it's equivalent in English is Dada. Dada or Daddy. In, 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 uh, in uh, Arabic, it's uh, abu. It's easy. Abu. Abu. It's the simplest thing. It's the, it's the easiest because it's labial. So your lips, you, you don't have to get back here, you know, like in some Hebrew words, like, like you're going to spit on somebody. Hate. I love that word. Like, kodesh. You go right on them. It's Hebrew. Uh, it's labial. So you can just say, so, so it, this is. When you hear the word Abba, I mean, it is shockingly, shockingly intimate. Dada. Dada. That's the spirit you received. That's the spirit you received. Not fear and slavery and performance, but one in which God is your daddy. I don't know how far we'll go with this, but there are two things you might want to think about. Now, I got some resources at the end of this. You can see some books that um, I wish I sold, but I uh, don't. But um, and I, you know, I'm not trying to create some new problem for people or some new issue, but there's enough research uh, out there that that at least from my standpoint. Um, what we know with children nowadays is called the reactive attachment disorder where kids don't attach either because of we have some evidence growing up in an orphanage and not being touched for some time and they can't attach. People adopt them. They love them. They shower them with affection, but there's never any attachment. It's just a reality. It's called an attachment disorder. Uh, a lot of different reasons. Who knows all of them? But I did do a little study at one point on two things, and I want to be careful here, uh, but I just want to ask you to consider the, some of the possibility here. Uh, there is some studies being done by Focus on the Family. I don't agree with everything they do, but they've done some work on what we call a father wound. A father wound. Uh, you can go to Focus on the Family and Google that on their section there. And I'm not here to try to blame fathers or people. I, I had a great dad. He didn't do everything right. 
but he and I had an issue that we had to deal with and talk about and face. And I think that's because of this. Kids are great recorders and terrible interpreters. When my dad, when I was a kid, he noticed that I had a lot of fear. And so my dad said, do the thing you fear. Because he saw me at the carnival in southeast Texas afraid to get on the Ferris wheel or the roller coaster. I'm still not crazy about it today. Don't mess with me on that, okay? <laughs> and my dad said, you should do the thing you fear. I recorded that. I didn't interpret it. And as you know, I've talked in my 20s when I lived in Houston that whenever I got to Houston and began to get involved in ministry, one of the things I was afraid of were outlaw motorcycle gangs. Don't know if any of y'all had that same concern. I did. So, as a terrible interpreter and a good recorder, I began to go to seek out outlaw motorcycle gangs. That doesn't even sound right. <laughs> When I was in seminary, I would go, went on Christmas Day. I remember sitting there at our home. Everybody looked around and said, where's Cliff? And Mike said, I think he's gone to a biker bar. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd have to have a gum on tattoo. I don't like needles, so I'm, you know. You know why? Because I'd recorded what my dad said. Do the thing you fear. And I did. It's a miracle I'm still here. I told you one point there was a gang called the Dead Men. They were ex-Hells Angels in Houston. And I got in the middle of them one time and started talking about God's love. But I wasn't really there to tell them about God's love. I was just scared and I had to do it. One of the guys said to me, don't ever turn your back on Gypsy. He likes to cut people up. And I said, note to self. <laughs> and this guy, no kidding, this guy's name was Dirty Dan. I told you maybe Cato was the leader. He's ex-Hells Angel. He let us take his kids to Sunday school on the bus because it was good babysitting for them. They didn't care if we went to church or not. They said we'd take care of them. And I said uh, to him one time, he's big Harley, big guy, you know. I said to him, hey, man, why don't you come to my church Sunday? And then I thought, what if he does? <laughs> I thought I was safe on this one. So I, you know. Be a good Christian. He erupted in front of me and began to use some language and said, I'll never go to church again. See, here's a lot of the research. A lot of reason people don't go to church because they have. <laughs> That's the truth. God help us. And, and then he starts spewing this vitriol and he said, my old man was a preacher. And he used to come home after church when he was mad and beat us. Because he hated what was going to church. That guy had a father wound. Deep. Never was able, you know, at one point, they take off. They lived in a bus. He did with his. There's, 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 there may be a father. It's not because our fathers did it on purpose. It's because we're great recorders and terrible interpreters. There's another idea that maybe we ought to think about, and that's this. Jesus used the word father to refer to God on a regular basis so that we might understand that this is the relationship that God wants with us. If we have a wound because of that, for whatever reason. It could be a mother wound. I, I'm not... I'm just saying that our experience in life has had its impact on us to be able to say we've got to at least at some point bring our understanding around to what the scriptures reveal to us about the nature of God. Now, I had a great idea here. We're not going to do it. <laughs> We're going to do it next week. The issue here is connection. The issue, the issue with father is connection. M many of us, maybe if we have that father wound, it, 
we'd love to be able to sit down and talk with our dad. I'm thankful I did before he died, many years before he died. And, you know, he was stunned when I said, do you like me as lovable as I am? I really did. I said, do you, do you even like me? I mean, you got to love me. That's your job, your dad. He goes, of course. I said, I never felt like he even liked me. He said, Cliff, you were my favorite. I went, what? <laughs> he did. He said, I went, let me tell you how deep this father wound was for me. When we talked about it, and I said to him, I felt like you pushed me too hard. I felt like you, you, you didn't like me. I felt like I had to perform all the time. Well, we got through talking. The most amazing thing happened. I didn't plan this. Here's the irony. We're not doing this other one, so relax. <laughs> Do it next week. Here's the irony. I'd asked my dad. I was a pastor in Louisiana. My dad was in Albuquerque. We met in a room at Mid-America Christian University during a minister's conference where for 20 years I taught every day. Every time I walk in that room, I could think about my dad and our conversation. When we got through, we always hug, but, you know, we're guys. We, we pat each other on the back to let everybody, we're not enjoying this. <laughs> we're not enjoying none of this, right? That's what Becky, you're right. Guys are, hey, yeah, man, it's great to see you, you know. That's because we don't want anybody to think we're enjoying this. So I, I got through, and I hugged my dad, and I kissed him on the cheek. I was 38 years old. Hadn't done that since I was eight. He, he and I had argued, and I had fought him and been a pain in the neck. Becky thought we were going to go to jail one time. We were arguing so much. Kissed him on the cheek. What I want to do next week, I want to run this up because I, I, well, the issue is connection and this is the antidote to the critical God. You know, I, th I think I, I interpret this for my dad because my dad was a hunter-gatherer. You know, he, a friend of mine always says, you know, he, he got to eat what he killed. <laughs> he was a hunter-gatherer. My dad wanted to be, be a man. And he was sort of critical. He didn't mean it. He didn't mean it. But the issue is, connect, am I connected to this God? Or is he still a stranger to me? Is he, is he still, like, there were times at our house when my dad was there physically, but emotionally he wasn't there. Gun smoke was on. We, we could have burnt the house down. <laughs> hey, Dad, I need a car. Okay. Hey, Dad, it's $30 out of your wallet. Okay. He was physically there, but emotionally. Now, he was relaxed, and I'm not trying to say you don't have time to relax, but there were a lot of other times where he's physically there, emotionally absent. And so the connection with that. Now, here's, here's what I want to do next week. I really got some good stuff here. I want to go from definitions to demonstration. Jesus told a story we've heard a lot about, but I want to go through it. There's something I want to pick apart on it. And that's the prodigal father in Luke 15. Je Jesus didn't just leave us with a definition, Abba. He didn't just leave us with words. He left us with a demonstration when he told the story. There was a man who had two sons. This demonstrates in real terms, what this father's like. Not just that, you know, we define father, Abba, all those things, the name of God, all this. But, but those, are all, those are all definitions. I, I want to walk through and pick that thing apart. There's some things in there that maybe you know, maybe you don't know, to be able to say, hey, there, there, there's a father here that Jesus wants us to know. So here's the point. Connection. Nope, that's next week. Nope, that's next week. Stop it, Cliff. Here's some good stuff. What if this week when you plug in your device, think about the connection you have with God as a father. We always got to be plugging our phones in. We got to be connecting them to, to recharge. 
This issue of father is connection. Am I connected to this God in a correct way as father? Not boss. Uh, one of the books on there on the bottom by Floyd McClung called The Father Heart of God. You ought to get it. The Father Heart of God. That's one of those resources down there. It's, it's, a, it's something that you could, you could deal with. I think I even have down there, there's the, there's the link uh, to uh, the focus on the family. But I ask you this week, when we think about connecting our devices, are we connecting to God the Father? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, a lot of us, me included, that I, you know this about me. Maybe these people don't know, but you and I know. Learning, growing, living this out is the great challenge of life. Everything in our culture talks to us about performance and possessions. How much you got makes you more important. What you can do makes you more important. Who you are, where you're from, makes you more important. We would love to know that you are God named Father, Abba. We're connected to you by our birth, our new birth by putting faith in Jesus. Would you help us to make that new connection this week? Stronger, maybe more, maybe for the first time. So we could live as a son, not a slave. A daughter, not a slave. A child, not a slave. We ask you to do for us what we cannot do ourselves so that we might see you more clearly. We'll be able then to love you more dearly and for sure be able to follow you more nearly each day as you do this for us. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.